I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. The theme of this week's show is Ebola. With me in the studio is Professor Mark Rupp. Mark earned his undergraduate degree in chemical engineering from the University of Texas at Austin, his MD at Baylor College of Medicine, and his doctorate in internal medicine and infectious diseases from Virginia Commonwealth University. Mark is currently a professor in the infectious diseases section of the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Mark is also a medical director at the Department of Healthcare's Epidemiology Infection Control Unit, the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program at the Nebraska Medical Center. Mark, hi, and welcome to uh, this week's show. Delighted to join you, Stuart. What is a, a typical day in, in the life of, of Mark Rupp? Well, one of the things I really do like about my profession is I get to do a lot of different things. And so part of my day-to-day life actually is seeing patients and dealing with their problems. And I do that both on the inpatient side. So I have somewhere around three months or so of duties where I'm seeing the inpatient consultation service. Uh, within Nebraska Medicine. And we typically have somewhere around uh, three to four consults that come in each day on the team uh, where doctors are asking us to come and see their most difficult cases to try to help them, um, you know, figure it out and uh, uh, get the patient uh, cured. In addition, I have a half a day per week, uh, every week, seeing patients on the outpatient side. And so there really is a lot of um, talking to patients Um, both very sick inpatients as well as perhaps not so sick folks on the outpatient side and trying to get them to understand uh, what it is that they have and how best to, uh, to treat that. Uh, So that's one of the things that I do. Uh, In addition, as you mentioned in your introduction, I'm the medical director of our infection control and epidemiology unit. And so this is a group of uh, very highly trained, uh, what we call infection preventionists. These are largely RNs, but sometimes people with specific microbiologic knowledge that I help to uh, supervise. And our whole goal is to try to prevent people from developing infections when they come into the hospital. Now, that might sound a little odd to your listeners, but unfortunately, today, in the United States, about 4% of everybody who comes into the hospital develops an infection that they didn't have when they came through the front door. Now, this equates to somewhere around maybe 1 to 2 million patients developing infections and up to 100,000 lives that are lost. So this is a huge issue and one we spend an awful lot of time and energy on at Nebraska Medicine trying to make sure that our medical center is as safe as possible and that people don't develop infections due to their medical care. Um, I'm also busy with the antimicrobial stewardship program. Um, I no longer direct that and I have some very, very, really smart and very good people at the medical center who are now working on that. Uh, But we started the program uh, probably 15 years ago or so um, and it's dedicated towards trying to use our antibiotics as wisely as possible. And many of your listeners have undoubtedly heard about the spread of antimicrobial resistance. And part of the reason for that is because we don't use antibiotics really all that wisely. And so we need to use them just as as wisely as we possibly can, use them when they're needed, but avoid them when they're not needed to try to prevent the emergence of antimicrobial resistance. I work on a variety of clinical trials. I get to educate students at all levels, so medical students, internal medicine residents, infectious disease fellows, as well as doing continual medical education for my fellow doctors. So there's really just a lot of different things I get to sort of uh, have my finger in the pulse on. I would imagine that 
when one thinks about it objectively, the idea of uh, infection occurring in a hospital environment does make some sense because, after all, we're concentrating uh, a lot of people that perhaps have um, some kind of affliction or disease of some form. Are there, are there any sort of typical simple solutions that you'd be working on or maybe recommending? Oh, sure. So we have all kinds of efforts underway um, constantly to try to make our patients as safe as possible. And so hand hygiene is one of the cornerstones of infection control. Uh, we've known about this for, you know, coming up on 150 to 200 years, but unfortunately, not everybody gets it yet. And so we have tried to make it as absolutely convenient as possible with the alcohol gels that people can use. Uh, we stress that continuously. And we have a system of monitoring at the Nebraska Medical Center. So we actually watch all of our uh, workers and we feed that data back to groups of healthcare providers at a unit level, uh, trying to boost awareness and continue to increase the adherence and compliance with hand hygiene. That's just one example. Uh, we also know that the environment is important. So in other words, when somebody comes into the hospital and they're colonized by an antibiotic-resistant pathogen, again, many of your listeners have heard of MRSA or methicillin-resistant staph or VRE or any of these other things that people call you know, the nightmare organism or the doomsday bug or what have you. Um, they can come into the hospital and they can contaminate the environment close by. So the bed rails, the telephone, the buttons, the switches, everything that people touch tends to be contaminated with those organisms that they have uh, that are causing their infection or sometimes they're just asymptomatically colonized. Now we know that if we don't clean that room after that patient leaves, the next patient who comes in and gets admitted to that room can contract those really, you know, very serious organisms and, and potentially get infections due to them. So we spend an awful lot of time trying to make sure that our environmental service personnel do a good job with cleaning and disinfecting the rooms. And we do that in some fairly interesting ways that are kind of sophisticated. So in one way, we use a UV-tagged marking gel that we put down on surfaces. And if the environmental surface, if the environmental service personnel don't clean that object, we can actually come back later, shine an ultraviolet light on it, and it glows in the dark. So uh, we do somewhere around 200 rooms per month now at Nebraska Medicine, marking about 12 to 15 surfaces per room. And the environmental service people do a very good job. Uh, we actually have a UV robot now that we put into rooms that irradiate the rooms and kill these organisms with irradiation. Now, some of your listeners are obviously concerned, oh my gosh, they're irradiating the environment. Well, it's completely different than, you know, what you think of with nuclear weapons or something like that, but it's the same principle. Uh, we're using UV irradiation to kill microorganisms in the room. So we work very hard on trying to make a clean and disinfected environment. The same thing has to be true with all of our surgical instruments, all of our endoscopes, everything that comes into contact with patients. We want to make sure that those are clean and disinfected, and it has to be done right every single time. Uh, we bathe our patients with chlorhexidine now. So we use a low-level di low level disinfectant to bathe all of our patients within the hospital. So this is a, a very safe disinfectant that's been within medical care now for decades. And so we use it to cleanse the skin on all of our patients, trying to make sure that they're not carrying these organisms that we're so concerned about. 
Um, another thing that we're doing is, as I mentioned, um, inserting and caring for devices very carefully. So uh, we have a very carefully prescribed method in which, for instance, central venous catheters are placed. Um, the providers who do this have to follow a checklist. Uh, they have to go step by step to make sure that they're doing everything right when they insert that catheter because we don't want it to get contaminated when we put it in. And then we have lots of programs in place to try to make sure that people uh, maintain those catheters correctly. So we have dressings that have an antiseptic in them. We have little caps now that we put on the end of the IVs that are soaked in alcohol to make sure that the catheters don't get infected. So these are just you know some of the things that we're always working on. Um, a lot of it is the human factors, however. So you're only as strong as your weakest link in this. And if, if there's somebody who's not doing a good job with cleaning or not doing their hand hygiene, not following the checklist, uh, this is where sometimes things fall down still. I'm sitting here in amazement and also in admiration, just hearing some of the uh, knowledge and the wisdom gained and the scientific advances and the processes and protocols that we can put into place. And just in, in awe of your abilities and the abilities of science at large in, in the medical field, and then I turn it around and just think, but there are still bugs and infectious diseases. And it, it seems that I should also have some grudging admiration for their ability to to survive and persist and to replicate and, and maybe rather like us to insist on surviving. And I, I wonder if, if in a perverse sort of way, you have a favorite bug or microbe or some sort of grudging admiration for um, uh, the materials with which you work. Oh, absolutely, Stuart. And um, that's a very insightful comment that you've made. Um, you know, it's estimated that the Earth is somewhere around four or five billion years old. And um, I'm not exactly sure how folks have seen this, but there's fossilized records of microbes being present for somewhere around the last four billion years or so. So they have seen uh, remarkable changes in their environment, whether it's due to the temperature or the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere or the amount of radiation coming from the sun or what have you. And they've been able to adapt to that environment over those billions, hundreds of millions of years. Um, they've been around a lot longer than we are, and it's probably a pretty good bet that they're going to be here a lot longer when we're not here. Um, so you're right. Uh, there is, you really do have to have sort of a grudging admiration for these uh, organisms. And quite frankly, I think that, you know, when we come at it from the standpoint of we're at war with the microbes and we're trying to eradicate them and kill them, it's probably maybe not the best philosophical approach to this issue. And in many instances, we're learning that the microbes actually have a tremendously beneficial effect upon our health. So I wonder if you might just describe some of the recent events and activities regarding UNMC and, um, and Ebola treatment. Sure. So it's probably worthy to just uh, turn back in time just a little bit and review for your listeners uh, the whole Ebola story. So back in December of 2013, uh, probably that first case of Ebola occurred in West Africa. Now, we've known about Ebola for decades. I mean, the first instances of outbreaks were back in the, in the 1970s, I believe. Uh, but in any case, uh, there was a case of uh, Ebola in that corner of West Africa where Guinea and Sierra Leone uh, in Liberia all kind of come together. Um, by the time it was all said and done, there were some, um, I believe it was 
somewhere in the neighborhood of 28,000 cases and about 11,000 deaths uh, due to Ebola. Um, your listeners are undoubtedly familiar with this. Uh, if they remember just a couple years ago, the, the mass hysteria that we had uh, in the country when everybody thought that Ebola was going to take off and just uh, uh, come into the cities of the United States. And we did have um, that tragic case in Dallas where a um, traveler from West Africa came into Dallas, developed Ebola, went to the ICU eventually, and uh, infected two of the nurses there. And this really set off the alarm bells, and people were extremely concerned. Here at Nebraska Medicine, uh, due to the foresight of a number of individuals there on the campus, uh, most markedly Phil Smith, um, developed our biocontainment unit back in answer to the anthrax release back in the early 2000s, if folks want to remember back then. And so we cared for uh, three patients with Ebola, all of whom uh, were airlifted in from West Africa. Um, two of the patients uh, did well, survived, and one patient arrived here uh, essentially extremely ill. So this was a patient that um, came in and immediately had to be put on dialysis and mechanical ventilation, was essentially comatose, and died within about 36 hours of arriving here. As you mentioned, uh, the world's eyes were on us. Um, I think uh, the folks that uh, were in the unit and associated with it can be justifiably proud. Uh, they stood tall and did a great job despite the fact that there was a lot of concern, a lot of um, people who were very, very scared about this. Uh, they did their job, they did it very well, and uh, we pulled this off without any untoward effects. Look at Yana. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. At the dead wagon, you lined around the hospital. I'm looking out the window. Seen the dead wagon driving away. The TB sheet. Yeah. The TB war. I feel mighty sick. I told the doctor to come here quick. With me in the studio is Professor Mark Rupp. You mentioned uh, mass hysteria, and I think that's typical with anything that uh, maybe occupies the um, cultural headlines. Well, we did try um, very, very carefully to communicate with the public, and we were extremely transparent about that. And I think that's really one of the lessons that anybody who's in any kind of crisis situation needs to understand, that uh, transparency generally is the, the best way of approaching these things. It's okay if you don't know something, but you have to tell folks that you don't know it and what you're doing to try to figure things out. Now, in the case of Ebola, believe me, there were an awful lot of very, very concerned people. Uh, some of the tragic um, and, and, and scary stories that we heard, um, for instance, were people who wouldn't come in to even get their routine labs performed in the medical center, just afraid that walking through the front door was somehow going to um, you know, get them uh, uh, infected with Ebola. Or even driving by, there were some concerns about whether the street should be closed, for goodness sakes. Uh, there was just an absolutely tragic story about actually one of the nurses 
who worked in the unit and had one of her children disinvited to a birthday party um, because they were concerned that because her mom uh, was uh, staffing the unit that somehow the child would be then carrying Ebola. So there was an awful lot of uh, fear, and it was all born out of ignorance, quite frankly. And so, again, we did try very, very aggressively to educate the population, get them to understand that this was not uh, going to be a danger to the public. And again, I think for the most part we were successful, but there were an awful lot of uh, of people who were concerned, and, and unfortunately uh, uh, still a lot of hysteria. And I think that part of that's because this is just an organism that was, you know, just sort of made in Hollywood, if you will. Um, you know, people are familiar with the movies Outbreak and Contagion and this and that. And uh, quite frankly, it was, it was sort of uh, reminiscent of that, if you will. Um, not to say that there wasn't reason to be concerned. Obviously, their organism is very, very deadly when you get infected with it, but it's not a particularly contagious organism. It's not spread via somebody coughing or sneezing or an airborne route. It really takes a lot of uh, direct contact with the people in order for this to, uh, to take off. And, you know, that, that figure that I gave you earlier in the program of 100,000 people dying in the United States each year due to healthcare-associated infections maybe brings this home to people. So what, what then are the more typical public health issues uh, related to infectious diseases that, uh, that impact communities? Um, I think legitimately a lot of people in public health are very concerned about uh, when the next influenza pandemic will occur. Uh, this is an organism that we know um, every now and then changes its guise. And so uh, we've had these pandemics in the past. The most notable is that that occurred back in 1918. It was called the Spanish flu. Um, it's estimated 20 million people died in that single year from the influenza epidemic. Now, every year we have continued influenza epidemics. They're obviously not nearly that severe, but the worry is that one of these new influenza organisms will come to the fore really sweep the earth again, resulting in, in perhaps tens of millions of deaths. This is something that is not a fairy tale. This is something that is very possible. Uh, this is why, again, public health is so carefully monitoring the reports of avian influenza in Southeast Asia and China now, because the worry is that one of those viruses will become adapted to the human host and then take off like regular influenza. Um, if that occurs, then we're going to need a very vibrant uh, public health system because this work that we've been doing with our biocontainment units that's you know, very useful to, for taking care of just a few very sick people will be completely worthless when you're talking about a pandemic that's, that's involving millions of people in the United States. So we need more robust uh, public health systems that are able to monitor people, quarantine folks, uh, get mass medications or vaccines out there as quickly as we possibly can. And you know while they're waiting for potentially for these uh, public health emergencies to take place, um, a vibrant and robust public health system can be attacking all the other problems that we have in our society with regard to public health. Um, uh, you don't need me to tell you. Just look around and you'll see the problems with smoking and obesity and you know, uh, public health concerns around traffic safety, uh, drug use, sexually transmitted diseases. The list goes on and on and on about really very important problems that affect us on our day-to-day -day basis that we could be working on. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Well, um, 
it's kind of funny. I, I got into medicine. Nobody in my family is in medicine. And so this was a decision that somehow I came to, and I really don't know why. I guess I always had an interest in uh, biology and medicine, and it just was kind of a natural outgrowth for me. Uh, initially, I started uh, off medicine thinking I wanted to do something very um, uh, invasive, surgical related. And uh, during my medical school rotations, I took all those sorts of rotations in orthopedics and plastic surgery and urology and all kinds of things. And then I figured out that that really wasn't my cup of tea and went into internal medicine and then found this branch within uh, infectious diseases. Um, a lot of folks don't understand how long that road is for a lot of doctors. And so uh, after high school graduation, as you mentioned, I went through four years of chemical engineering training. Uh, knew fairly quickly I didn't want to be a chemical engineer, but then went to medical school for four years and then had seven years of postgraduate education where I was trained in internal medicine and infectious diseases. And I remember my dad sort of kidding me about being in 26th or 27th grade and when was I going to go and get a real job. So it is a long road for physicians uh, in general and for folks like myself who have sort of subspecialized, uh, but it's a terrific field. And I would encourage anybody out there who's considering it that medicine is an absolutely fantastic field to go into. Uh, you can do an awful lot of good. Um, there's always new and exciting uh, things to be learning about, and it's, it's a terrific field. I understand you had a TV show. <laughs> uh, hopefully none of your listeners remember that. <laughs> well, as we draw to a close in, let me ask this final thought from you. If there was one thing you wanted to share with the community that's within your uh, knowledge or your field or, or that you just like to share about your work, what do you think it's important to, uh, uh, to tell the community? What, what should they know? Well, I think that uh, a message that should come through very loud and clear probably has to do with antimicrobial resistance and antibiotic use. Uh, most people take totally for granted uh, the wonderful capability of antibiotics to cure folks. You know, it wasn't really that long ago that uh, people died routinely of garden variety infections, just skin infections, uh, urinary tract infections, respiratory infections. Um, you know, the chances were that if you um, got pneumonia, you'd die from it. Uh, if you had meningitis, you certainly died from it. We can almost routinely cure these kinds of folks and these kinds of infections now. But unfortunately, because antibiotics have been misused, at least part of the reason uh, is the misuse of antibiotics, we're seeing more and more and more resistance to the point that people are now talking about the post-antibiotic era. So this is an era when the organisms are so resistant that doctors are faced back with the situation that they had back in the 1920s, 1930s, when there really weren't antibiotics to treat infections. And so I would urge people to become more cognizant of this, um, to realize that antibiotics are wonderful, but they do have um, adverse events. And part of that is the selection for antibiotic resistance. And we all have to work together uh, to really solve this problem. And it has to be more than just doctors uh, using antibiotics better. We need to be looking at anti-infectives throughout nature. And so here in an agricultural state, we use an awful lot of antibiotics in our animal husbandry practices. So these antibiotics are given to animals as a growth promoter. And that, I think, is not uh, an appropriate use for these amazing uh, drugs, that we need to reserve them for treating illness and not just to be able to grow um, animals more quickly um, and bring them to market uh, with larger mass so that, you know, you can kind of uh, make more money more quickly uh, with, um, 
with the use of antibiotics in, in uh, agricultural practices. So again, I know that's not a popular thing out there um, amongst uh, some folks in an agricultural state, but this is just part of the truth, that we need to get smarter about how we do this. So um, that's a really long-winded answer to your question, Stuart, but it's, it's probably what I would suggest is the one message I'd like to get out from the program today. You're listening to Lives. I've been in conversation with Mark Rupp. It's been enlightening, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. My pleasure to be here. Welcome back to Lives. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Dialogue, that part of the show where I'm joined in the studio by some guests to talk broadly about the show's theme. With me today is Marion Fay and Jordan Del Mundo. Marion's hobby for the past six years has been advocating for the rights of all students and families as a member of the OPS Board of Education. Professionally, she advocates for the arts and humanities in Nebraska. Personally, she advocates for her four children. Marion's pronouns are she, her, hers. Hello, Marion. Hello, Stuart. Jordan is the executive director of Nebraska AIDS Project. He earned his BA from Creighton University and later earned a Master of Social Work and a Master of Public Administration from the University of Nebraska at Omaha. At Nebraska AIDS Project, Jordan focuses on oversight of administration, programs, fund development, community engagement, and strategic direction for the entire statewide agency, as well as federal and state HIV AIDS policy and the social determinants that surround HIV, AIDS, STIs, and other public health issues. Hello, Jordan. Hello, Stuart. Thanks for being here. So um, the theme of this week's show is Ebola, which seems to be a very peculiar theme when one thinks about this being a community radio show. But here we are in Omaha, Nebraska, which uh, claimed to fame or notoriety, I'm not sure, uh, had uh, some great public... uh, uh, notoriety around Ebola and this sort of, uh, what would you call it, a decontamination unit, containment unit mm-hmm. at UNMC. Mm-hmm. And containment unit. Containment unit. And of course, one one naturally hopes that containment is the operative word. So I'm, I'm wondering, my reaction to the uh, uh, doctor who was uh, brought here suffering from uh, Ebola to be uh, treated and who subsequently uh, made it, I thought that was a good thing. And I thought that was great for Omaha. But I'm also wondering if you had a reaction that this was a horrible thing and how on earth could we be bringing uh, people with Ebola to this community? I didn't think either one of those things. I don't I don't know how you can think it's a bad thing to save someone's life. So in that regard, I thought it was a positive thing. But I thought that the reaction to Ebola was so out of proportion to the actual risk of anybody getting it. And... I don't know, Jordan could probably talk more about numbers and HIV over the past 30 years and how many, pe- you know, your, how many people have been um, infected 
with HIV. And, and so I'll let him speak to that. But the first thing I thought of when that uh, Ebola epidemic was spreading around Africa and then subsequently people were brought over here was uh, the influenza crisis or pandemic during World War One, And I think there was something like 20 to 30 million people who died from influenza during World War One, And can you imagine how absolutely freaked out the country would be if we had anything on that scale right now? I mean, that would be the way. But the thing about Ebola is that it's gross and sensational and it's like it's like uh, disease porn. Right. 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 I think the (laughs) operative word is sensational. And I feel that when it comes to issues of public health and infectious disease, um, sometimes media doesn't take enough time or maybe it's maybe they don't have enough time to do the background work to truly paint the picture for people to understand. And I think in our kind of fast food, 140 character culture, uh, that that quickness and that speed opens up room for, uh, you know, great uh, fear mongering sometimes and reactions to the unknown. Uh, my reaction to the Ebola thing was I thought that was fantastic. Uh, one for, uh, you know, our, our medical center here in Omaha and the great work that the people do. Um, and to help raise awareness about, uh, raise awareness that we can help people, um, when, when given the right, uh, care and the access to that care, um, which is generally true for most any kind of disease. So I thought that was good. Um, I don't remember too much about the other, the, the rest of the reaction community wide. If it was negative, I just tried to tune that stuff out. I think the good thing here is that um, it focused attention on a class of people that's sort of other than right. a lot of times. And right. so that's probably a really good thing. Absolutely. Does it translate to other public health areas where there's also people who are other than? You bring up a good point. Uh, a lot of times these things are the impetus to otherize different peoples or classes of people or or any kind of group that may not be the one that's favored at the moment uh, politically. Um, so I think uh, in general, that's, that pre- presents an opportunity for a lot of um, people working in the public health sphere to do some education. Um, I, you know, For me, I didn't wanna take away from uh, the, the kind of information people are being exposed to about Ebola. But I think in general, Rising tide lifts all ships in that kind of regard. You know, if the, the discourse can be lifted to a higher level, I think that provides opportunity for the rest of us too. So you use the words disease porn, which is quite provocative in its own way, but I, I rather like it in terms of perhaps getting the truth across somewhat bluntly, which is the glamorization of some uh, diseases and perhaps the um, stigmatization of others, uh, sort of, let's just say, vulgar or seedy or, or dare I say, sort of sexual or in a, a, a other diseases that perhaps it's easier to otherize the, the sufferers from. Like heart disease, which is the number one killer of women, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't ever hear about it. I think there's a blue dress thing or something like red dress, blue oh, dress. See, I don't I even don't know. know, and I'm a woman. <laughs> so it's, you know, I, I 
I don't know that glamorous is the word I would use. I think sensational. I think it's, you know, the reality TV of diseases is Ebola because it you you go out big when you die from Ebola. So Ebola doesn't have as as much of an impact in this country as it does in other places in the world. And I think that distance uh, from the actual disease, from the actual consequences and dealing with friends or family that have uh, experienced it or are living with it or who are dying from it, give people, uh, you know, this safe distance from it. Exactly. Uh, whereas, you know, let's take any kind of infectious disease in this country, um, it's a little different because we don't have, you know, it's easier for people to, to talk about things that they have some distance from. Uh, and it can be a little more difficult for people to talk about what's, you know, truly impacting them. And also, you know, that distance gives you safer space to kind of say things without having to deal with what potentially those uh, consequences could be or opinion or any of that. But we do that with within our own country for all kinds of diseases. And we mm -hmm. definitely have done that with HIV right. because even 30 years later, still many of us can safely say we don't know anybody right. who's died, at least in my circle, who's died from HIV. Is that one of the major community health challenges, this idea that we normalize some diseases and uh, we sensationalize some others, especially when they feel at some distance? But how, how do we have a conversation in a, as a community about those normalized uh, afflictions, whether it's, uh, for example, obesity or diabetes, compared to perhaps something that seems more sensational? Well, I thought of two things as you were talking. First of all, obesity and diabetes, um, type 2 diabetes in particular, require the person who's been afflicted to do something. That's actually something that they can change in their life and, and impact their health positively, as opposed to something that's, that they acquire outside of their control. And I think that, again, not to keep bringing up HIV, except that Jordan is sitting right here. Hi. Hello. <laughs> but that's an, another thing that we, you know, that's another category. We put people who mm -hmm. have HIV into, well, you somehow brought this on yourself. And so right. um, so that's, that's different from obesity in that way. The other thing I thought of, and I think a disease that has, or a, a condition or a disease that has been glamorized for a very long time is cancer. One of my daughter's favorite books this last year was The Fault in Our Stars. It seems to me from my daughter's recounting of it, you know, a young adult version of what from the 70s was a love story. Or mm -hmm. think about Brian's song Brian's going, song. right? Yeah. So, um, you know, where we take true to life or in the case of Brian's song, true life stories and glamorize it and Hollywoodize it and mm -hmm. you know and then right. um, that makes or or even breast cancer and uh, the whole pink thing in October and all of that Very corporate yeah. yeah right lots of money getting breast breast cancer being treated for breast cancer raising money and awareness about breast cancer talking about breast cancer putting pink things and boobs and everything out there as totally normal that becomes glamorous in a way 
that you've never seen for something like HIV. Right, right. I think um, the way, and since I work in HIV, AIDS, and public health infectious disease in general, the way that we've uh, combated sensationalization and how stigmatization and othering creates that distance from people so that they, they feel that they're not connected to something is to help people get close. That starts to change their thinking. When, you, when, when people realize that there is some sort of connection and there's, some, there's more commonality, um, you get to you experience empathy. Um, and I think that's the key to dealing with and solving some of our, uh, our, our you know, diseases or social ills that have persisted for such a long time. And when people start to experience some empathy, some sympathy, a connection, you have the opportunity to help change the narrative that they've been exposed to, to something that's maybe more factual or, more, or closer to the truth. Uh, and I think for the people who are affected by those diseases, then that gives them an opportunity to hope. Because if they've been otherized and stigmatized, say, for people living with HIV AIDS in the 80s and you have no hope, it can be hard to continue. But until you see other people start fighting for you and to start to understand, or even if it's people who are just like you who are the people who are fighting for you, you can generate that hope. And I'll also say, too, because I work in a field that's very rooted in social justice, is sometimes you're going to have to do things that are uncomfortable uh, in order for people to under, to see, to hear, to understand. So I, I am curious about how we as a community go about educating the public more effectively and what sort of, of approaches maybe you think have, have worked well. I, you know, one of the things that I think is always helpful is to... You always want to have a wide net, uh, but we I think we can all agree that sometimes a wide net doesn't get you uh, an efficient and uh, uh, maybe not get the right information to the right people fast enough kind of thing. So I think also is if we're ed- com- educating the, pu- the community, one of the uh, strategies that's worked is to find someone that we would consider an opinion leader, um, be that... Uh, a celebrity, a politician, or somebody who has just has some well-renown in the community, and recruit them to be your megaphone. Um, you know, some people might know Stuart Chittenden much better than they know Jordan Del Mundo. And so if I needed some help in uh, spreading some knowledge, maybe I would recruit the, the person that has the, uh, the broader uh, just kind of crowd listening to him or her. So what about maybe the um, the shock and awe approach of advertising and, and PSAs? So I, I recall some of those anti-smoking ones that were typical when I was growing up, and, and now they've moved into uh, sort of putting blackened lungs on, on packets of cigarettes. But I don't know if that advertising itself was necessarily that effective compared to broader cultural trends that perhaps shifted people away from wanting to smoke. So if it, if it isn't that kind of public media, 
where else do we start? I don't know that there's any way to narrow it down to just one thing. It's probably a combination of lots of things. I'm thinking about the campaign that was just going on all last year to get uh, tested for STIs. Mm-hmm. Um, the the what you saw at bus stops and on billboards about basically how anybody could, you know, the prom queen, the right. the football quarterback, anybody um, could have an STI. And here's who you here's what you call to get tested. But in addition to that, there has been a greater emphasis in the classroom on broadening the message that we give to children at a younger and younger age. It's probably also the awareness that came from people who are my age, and I graduated from high school in 1986, so just as HIV AIDS was coming on to uh, public awareness, that growing up like that and hearing about Ryan White and um, hearing about discrimination and, and people dying horrible deaths probably also contributed to the way that parents like me talk to their children. I think uh, Marion is right on. It can't just be at one level. You know, you can have your peer-to-peer education, maybe some group level, community level, but you need structural level uh, interventions also. For example, for STIs, you know, comp sex ed. Without that kind of broad structural thing, I doubt we're going to make much uh, progress. And uh, going back to the the shock and awe um, kind of way of grabbing people's attention and educating, a lot of research has shown that uh, those t- types of approaches don't work. Uh, what they do then instead is potentially stigmatize certain conditions or ideas more. Um, there, there has to be a more eloquent way of grabbing people's attention and keeping their momentum moving forward in a positive way instead of potentially stigmatizing people. For instance, I know when uh, I talk to high school students about their uh, experience learning about STIs or whatever, uh, and the shock and awe thing doesn't lead to much learning, is what I hear. Um, So I think, yeah, it has to be multi-level. However, that also can be kind of hard to do depending on what the what the condition is that we're, we're trying to educate about, but I think that's the ideal. So you mentioned the word structural. So I think of Omaha as an example of a culture that is very much in favor of cars and, and less so in favor of the kinds of physical activity you would expect in, in a bigger city, just walking, using public transit, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if systemically we as a local community culture have baked in the scenarios that hinder people from getting healthy and exacerbate those situations that we do find ourselves in, such as um, you know, obesity or, or diabetes or heart health. Are those the systems that we really need to be paying attention to? I think so, uh, absolutely. If there's one thing that is at the root of a lot of public health and what we do to try to improve public health is the understanding of how those systems uh, – and everything around that intersects. Yeah, you know, compare, you know, if you would compare Omaha with a relatively lacking general mass transit infrastructure to a city of, you know, comparable population, but with maybe a better uh, transit system, I think you would see some some differences in the general health. Um, Yeah, transportation, that just 
keyed in a whole bunch of other things that I could talk about, but I'm going to pause for now. I think one of the things about having um, infrastructure and having systems in place that give you, as a citizenry, um, not only access to mass transit, but also exposure to the people across your community and outside of your immediate neighborhood and your you know little uh, corridor between your home and your work is that you are exposed to more people from more backgrounds with more conditions of life and it helps you to develop that empathy right. and you start seeing yourself as one of part of an entire community and not just one as part of your subdivision or your um suburb or your school and you can identify better with that whole cross-section of people it gets you out and gets them in and gets everybody mixed up together which is just a further way to develop understanding and commonality and hopefully empathy and compassion for each other when you were talking about you were sort of without stating it directly referencing when you were talking about general health obesity and diabetes and and how um, there are whole sections of this city that were developed without sidewalks, uh, with you know, cul-de-sacs and circles and lanes and drives and all of these um, uh, neighborhoods that were engineered specifically for a certain type of lifestyle that didn't include walking places. I mean, I know there's neighborhoods where there are schools in practically in someone's backyard, but they can't get to it without driving half a mile because there's no they can't there's no sidewalk to get there. There's no direct route to walk there. There's just fences and and people's yards and dead end streets that go to cul-de-sacs and lanes and circles and drives. The ironic part of that is that there many of the people who live in these more uh, middle and upper middle class parts of our city that are that were engineered this way are probably fairly healthy because they have access to higher quality food. They're higher, um, have a higher education level, healthcare, healthcare, and they can pay for a gym membership. Mm-hmm. Right, all mm-hmm. of those things. So the benefits of designing a city that has accessible mass transit for everybody and um, scattered site housing and anything that allows people to come together uh, as community. Possibly the primary driver of community health issues is poverty. Mm-hmm. It's always horrible to think about public health in terms of money, but if if poverty is this main driver, it it's ironic to me then to think about the I still regard it as wonderful facilities that we offer for what would seem to be somewhat extreme and unusual instances that really don't affect this community at large. So that made me think of something that when I first got on the Board of Education was brought uh, to my attention as an issue, which was that we had more students, elementary school students, missing school for uh, problems related to uh, dental issues, um, infected teeth and um, cavities and, you know, general pain and um, infection than we did for other health issues because of the lack of access to quality dental care. Obviously, we know that if children are going to learn, they need to be in school. So 
there you go. I mean, that's a, an example of how, um, how, how little it would probably cost to address that one particular public health need versus how much it costs to address Ebola. Now, to the credit of the philanthropic community in Omaha and the Omaha Public Schools, um, some of that particular need was taken care of with the um, school-based health centers that were brought on and some of the subsequent dental care that's become a part of that. Uh, so I'm hopeful that those numbers are changing and that we're addressing that. But um, that, you know, relatively speaking, the cost to help a child deal with a cavity so that they can go to school and learn has to be minute compared to the cost of helping one person with Ebola. Not that we shouldn't help that one person, but it does uh, take us back to that conversation about what catches the public's attention, what's interesting, what's sensational. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that is the problem. And certainly none of us are sitting here saying this is either or. I certainly am not saying we should get rid of the uh, Ebola competence, for example, that we saw um, in favor of uh, uh, other public health initiatives. I don't think it's as uh, binary as just saying one or the other. Clearly, clearly it isn't. We're just using um, uh, the theme of Ebola as a way to access a conversation about what else could we do that makes sense uh, for, for public health in this community. And, and clearly with your example there, it seems astonishing that um, we can tell the world that we, we can contain and treat Ebola, but we can't give our uh, children uh, healthy teeth and get them to school. I mean, that's, that's just an mm-hmm. absurd situation mm-hmm. to be in. That's a good segue. You know, what can we do to increase just this general public health? And this brings me all the way back to uh, the transportation thing. Um, there are people who want to be healthy. Uh, however, because of our current uh, transportation system, unless you have a car or can make arrangements with a friend or family who do have a car to get you to your medical appointment, uh, a lot of times those, those medical appointments can be missed. And that's not for not wanting to get there. It's just because we don't have the kind of infrastructure that can help uh, those people uh, access that kind of health care. Um, I think a lot of times when people, when we talk about access to health care, we can forget that accessing health care is more than just having a card that allow a card that allows you to get the health care once you're at the doctor's office. Access to health care also includes getting there. What are the moral perspectives that relate to public health from a community perspective? It's uh, what's it again? It's just it's just caring for your brother sister. I think that's important. Uh, for me, uh, recognizing that there, there, I think we all have to accept on certain issues, uh, people don't always agree, but that doesn't mean you don't try to understand or try to assist. Um, for, for me in my field, you know, I deal with a virus that affects everybody. It doesn't, it, the virus doesn't choose one person over another for one reason or any any other. Uh, it affects all people. And so for me, that dictates that I should try to understand as much as possible as many people as I can because their unique situation is going to be something that we as uh, public health people and um, just helpers uh, cannot be as good a helper as we could be without having some of that understanding. Do no harm. Isn't that what doctors are taught, right? Yeah. That's the bottom line. 
With me today in dialogue have been Marion Fay and Jordan Del Mundo. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Stuart. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. Behind-the-scenes management was provided by the magnificent Marion Fay. Lives is a production of Squish Talks. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. I'm Stuart Chittenden. 